0: The reading for today is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Amy. Good morning, Redemption. Uh, As um, it's interesting, as is all of life this morning, is um, just a mixture of excitement and sorrow. Uh, We're excited about the fact that this is the first of only four more Sundays in our first home as Redemption Arcadia getting ready to move, that's very exciting, but of course the sorrow about what has happened in Orlando, and uh, just uh, be mindful of that and and please be praying uh, for the people there, the victims' families, um, and just everything that's going on, law enforcement as they begin to sort through uh, all of that. Uh, Amy read Psalm 2 today, so we're back in the Psalms, and you can turn to Psalm 2 if you want. Uh, As you're doing that, let me mention to you that, again, because of the way the calendar works in Phoenix this time of year, uh, it's possible that there are some of you who have not been here for the last two Sundays, and I would just uh, really encourage you. I, I hardly ever do this, but in this case I will because I think it's important. I would encourage you to go back and listen to. Uh, the message two Sundays ago that you may have missed. It's introducing this this uh, summer series in the Psalms and a look at Psalm 1. And then also we took a break last Sunday and talked about uh, the finances of the church and where we stand and the property and the capital campaign and the monthly uh, income and expenses and all of that. Uh, and we talked a, little, a lot about um, giving from the standpoint of Paul's text in 2 Corinthians. And so it would be very helpful if you could go and listen to that podcast as well. So if you've missed either or both of those podcasts, we would encourage you to go back and listen to uh, both of those. Uh, So we are in the Psalms again, and now Psalm 2. And uh, we couldn't do them together too much uh, to cover, but Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 really go together. They're very complementary. I think that no, obviously, we're doing 12 or 13 weeks in the Psalms, so we're not going to cover all 150 Psalms. But if you decide that you're going to do a series in Psalms, uh, I think that it's impossible to do an adequate job in the Psalms, no matter how long your series is. If you don't do Psalm 1 and 2, they are introductory, and they set the stage, uh, very important theology, as well as dealing with our emotions, which is important in the Psalms. So you have to do Psalm 1 and 2. I think you have to do Psalm 73, which is going to come in July. It'll be the first Sunday after we move in. You have to do Psalm 73 because it asks that question that we all ask, especially if, if you're somebody who believes that you're uh, in Christ and a godly person. You, you obviously look around and ask the question, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? And Psalm 73 deals with that. Uh, I, I think you have to do Psalm 23 because, you know, it's Psalm 23, and And you have to do Psalm 137, which uh, most people would would really rather just ignore or pretend doesn't exist. It has some of the, if not the most graphic and violent language in the Bible in it. It kind of goes along with the end of Judges. I mean, it seems like it ought to be just grouped with the end of the book of Judges. Uh, So you have to do Psalm 137 if you're going to be honest about dealing with the spectrum of the Psalms. And, And I think also you have to do Psalms 146 through 50. The, the, the praise and thanksgiving psalms that talk about genuine praise and worship and thankfulness to God. And so that would be my position on that. So Psalm 1 and 2 complement each other. They, they go together. Uh, Psalm 1 gives us a very clear picture of the contrast between the one who is righteous and walks in the counsel of, of God and the one who is wicked and walks in the counsel of the scoffers of God and his people. Psalm 2 then expounds on the righteous and the wicked, explaining that the righteous uh, are those who submit to God, to God's will, and to his anointed, and the wicked who rage against God and his anointed. And Psalm 2 is expressed in four stanzas which could also be described as four different voices in the psalm. If you notice, each of the, of the paragraphs or stanzas changes in its, in its voice, in, in what's being done in each of those uh, stanzas. So stanza 1, or voice 1, verses 1 through 3, the rebellious rulers and the rebellious peoples, those who rebel against God, are described. Those who do not believe in, in God are described. Verses 4 through 6 is God's response to those who are rebellious. That's the second voice. The third voice, verses 7 through 9, is the Davidic king. God's anointed is speaking from his perspective. And then voice four, the fourth stanza, verses 10 through 12, is God's wise counsel to the rebellious. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, look, you're in deep trouble, but he, then he counsels them and hopes to bring him, them unto him. And here's the big idea for today, and we'll explain this a lot more as we go along, but I think for the, for the vast majority of us, even if, we're not, if we've not been around church or Bible or theology for very long, I think we get this. The, the big idea today is ironic justice. And ironic justice is when our sin turns against us. This uh, pleasure or advantage or... Uh, w- desire of our heart, whatever it is that is contrary to the created order and contrary to what God would call us to, and we go and do it, when that turns against us, that's known as ironic justice. Ironic justice. So let's dive back into Psalm 2 and take, them one st- take it one stanza at a time. So here you go, verses 1 through 3 again. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against his anointed saying let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us so this word rage means to cause an uproar in other words you're stirring things up you're causing an uproar and people who rage often have no idea what they're really doing they're just they just know they don't like something and so it's a It's sort of a violent emotional response. But then this word plot is really interesting. In in the Hebrew, if you really study this word, you find out that it means to fantasize. So this plot, this plotting by those who rage against God is really just a fantasy. They think they're right, but it's a fantasy. It's fanciful. And so their fantasizing is actually in vain, which is one of the messages God is trying to get across in this psalm, is that when you rage against God and his anointed, you are doing it in vain. The word vain means worthless, empty, and good for nothing. The psalm also says that they they all take counsel in each other. All of us are doppelgangers of thought, all of us. Christians are doppelgangers of thought. Non-Christians are... We all do this. We all like to gather around people who think exactly like us so that we never really have to be challenged in what we're thinking or what we believe. We all like to do that. So in this case, it's those who rage against God. They like to gather together and counsel each other and affirm each other. That's what it's saying here. They, They take counsel, and that word again literally means to build a foundation. So they're not just taking counsel in each other. But they're, they're, they're digging down deep, building a foundation. They're digging in. They are buttressing themselves. They're setting themselves uh, against God and people and rulers. There are those who like to build their lives specifically on a foundation of being anti-God. And it is a foundation of sand According to Jesus, let's see what Jesus has to say about this in in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. Jesus says, "'Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them "'will be like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. "'And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew "'and beat on that house, but it did not fall "'because it had been founded on the rock, on a solid foundation.'" And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall because of it. Uh, Psalm 2 and this little section of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 really go together. You'll also see later on as we go through this that. There are parts of the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, that really seem to be based a lot in the, the understanding that Psalm 2 uh, teaches us as, as well. And then that third verse simply is this. It's, it's the person, it's the, the nation, it's the, the rulers and leaders who say, we just want to be released from God. We want to break his cords because that's real freedom. Freedom. Don't tie yourself up in the prison of God, but genuine freedom comes when you release yourself of God, when you don't don't worry about God anymore. That's genuine freedom. Some people see God as a prison, and I will tell you, some people see God as liberation. Now, there's a little bit of truth in both of those statements, depending on how you look at it. I think, again, here you go, Romans 1. I think it's interesting. Romans 1, the last half of Romans 1 Paul very specifically lays out the case that God loves you and pursues you, wants you to be with him, but if you continue to resist him, at some point, God will let you have your way. He will take his hands off. This thing that some theologians call common grace will be removed from your life, and you can then go after your dark, sinful pleasures and desires all you want. But Paul also warns that when that happens, you will suffer the consequences of your sin. The wrath of God will actually be expressed in you suffering the due consequences of your sin. That's what that looks like. And so those of us who want to be free from God, understand you're going to run really to a prison of your sin, the slavery of your desires and passions. That's what will happen. One of the most stinging judgments in life, and every one of us in this room has suffered it at one time or another, whether you believe in God or not, we've all suffered this. One of the most stinging judgment in, judgments in life is when we suffer the consequences of our own sin. It is ironic justice when it doesn't turn out the way we thought it would turn out. It's when one's false god, one's idol, whatever that is, whatever that is, Thing is that you worship instead of God or above God ends up destroying the worshiper. Again, going back to the book of Judges that we studied the first part of this year, there was a lot of that in the book of Judges, that people would worship a false god and then that false god would turn right around and destroy the worshiper. And destroy the worshiper. That is prison. That is bondage. Yet Paul says in Galatians 5 in his letter to the church at Galatia, He talks about the freedom that comes in Jesus. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And then he says, stand firm and do not submit yourselves again to that yoke of slavery. That yoke of slavery being the sin. The the passions and desires of our heart that we think are so right. It's my heart. I'm just following my heart. How could my heart ever betray me? Guess what? Our hearts betray us all the time. We think we have an understanding of our heart, and yet we do not. Paul is saying, listen, this gift of salvation, this gift of walking with Christ and being liberated from having to live up to something or, or having to worry about whether you're going to go or what you're going to do, having to worry about how you're going to be empowered to get through life, this gift is not something that you get because of your worthiness. It's, it, you get it because of God's love and grace and holiness. And he says this gift of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, this is really important, is not something that you and I achieve. It's something that you and I receive. It's the only way. It's the only way. Those of us who are thinking about how can I be accepted and worthy to God There's only one way, and that's to be in Christ. When Christ said, it is finished on the cross, he said all of our finagling and maneuvering to try to make us acceptable to God, it's done. I've done it. I fulfilled the law. And so in me, you have too. It's a gift, and it's beautiful. And then you look at that second voice, the second stanza of the psalm, verses 4 through 6. This is now God responding He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So we rage against God, or nations and people and rulers rage against God, and they think nothing bad could possibly happen. We're right. We've got this figured out. Everyone else, they're the foolish ones. And we're told that God laughs at this. He laughs. Literally, the word is with amusement and scorn. So he's amused, but he also looks at it with scorn, which fits the idea of holding them in derision. The word derision literally means has no respect for their position and finds it fanciful. So here, the psalmist is actually using a wordplay. They plot, they fantasize, And God finds it fanciful. So there's a wordplay going on in this psalm to help us remember, to help us to understand. Uh, This is confirmed again in, in Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. But the counsel of the Lord stands forever and the plans of his heart to all generations. And then in this stanza, you get to those words, wrath and fury. And yes, that is God's wrath and fury. And both are Hebrew different, but both are Hebrew words for anger. Uh, One, wrath, that literally means anger that contorts the face. Have you ever been so angry that your face was contorted? Of course you have been. You maybe don't want to admit it, and it may be on YouTube somewhere, but you certainly have been. I, you know, you just, it contorts your face, you're so angry. The, the other anger is a result of displeasure. Okay, now I, I just, I can feel it, I, I've been doing this a long time, you just feel it in the room, There's, it's, it's, but wait a minute, I got a verse for you, pastor, God is a God of love, God is love, 1 John, so God's a God of love, so what's with all this anger and wrath stuff? Isn't God a God of love? Of course he is. Here's the problem, though. Your definition of love, my definition of love even, is not God's definition of love. He's talking about genuine love here. Why would genuine love be void of judgment and anger? Because it sounds good, but in practice, none of us actually practice it. Do you understand that? If you've ever said or thought that love has no wrath or judgment or anger aspect to it, I bet you haven't been able to live your life that way. You can't. All you have to do is drive on the 101. None of us are loving on the 101. I'm telling you. It's a result of thinking emotionally and not critically. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with emotions necessarily, but when you don't also add critical thinking to the equation, you can get yourself in trouble. There is no such thing as love without anger at sin, injustice, and the perversion of holiness. Uh, I brought this up with our staff because I said, I'm going to deal with this on Sunday. What do you think? Should Should I do this, you know? you guys want to get the emails as a result of my preaching? You know? <laughs> and they were all, no, you got to do this. you got to do this. And there was a pretty lively discussion. It's fascinating. This is one of the things that we, we observe. It's fascinating how angry some people get about God's anger. Now think about that. Apparently, humans can be angry but never God. I've never understood that logic. Okay? It's the pacifist... Who who is firmly dedicated to nonviolence, and if you don't agree with him, he's going to beat the snot out of you. Okay, which happens. Everybody's a pacifist until they've been violated. Then we've got problems. Then we've got problems. Uh, Cody said it this way, and I I say it, Cody. I think this is a really good insight. He said. As human beings, we tend to, and this is true not just with God but with everybody else, we tend to excuse and exalt our anger while judging everybody else's anger. That's what we tend to do. There's this uh, preacher from a few hundred years ago named Charles Spurgeon, almost as smart as Cody, not quite, but he says it this way, okay? He says it this way. Listen to this. Men, human beings, men will allow God to be anywhere except on his throne. We will allow God to be anywhere except on his throne. This psalm is about those who do not want God on his throne and, in fact, are trying to take God's throne from him. God doesn't belong there. We do or I do. I do. And God laughs at this. He's amused by this. And then in verse 6, you you begin to hear this language of the anointed, the, the king that he appoints, that he's blessed the Messiah, the Christ. This is both current and eternal. It's talking in two layers about uh, the line of the Davidic kingship and the Messiah that's going to come through David's line as well. So Jesus, that would be Jesus. Which tells us that Psalm 2 is also rooted in a chapter in the Old Testament from 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's rooted in that chapter where God promises that David's name is going to be a supreme name because it's the line that the Messiah is going to come through. But this, this also looks forward, like I said, to the coming Messiah, to Jesus. This psalm looks forward to Jesus, and it looks forward to those who will reject him. So the point of verse 6 is God letting everyone know that the one he selects is the one that people must submit to. It's Jesus, and he's God. He's not just the one who's anointed, but he is God as well. Now, it's very important not to just talk about that, but to talk about the fact that God's anointed also has a responsibility. God's anointed also has a responsibility to be the light of God to the nations. That was the call of Israel and ultimately the call of Israel's kings to lead them in that. God didn't just say, I'm going to bless you and have fun. He said, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a light to the nations. And the kings of Israel were supposed to lead that. Read your Old Testament. How many kings were really good at that? Not many. By the way, the judges were supposed to be that too. You saw how corrupt most of them were. Maybe Deborah. She came the closest. And we point to David, King David. He was a man after God's own heart. Yeah, he also uh, committed adultery with another man's Wife and then had him murdered. So David had some issues as well. Okay? Now, who is supposed to be a light to the nations? It's the church. The church of Jesus Christ. It's us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 we are ambassadors of Christ, we are ambassadors of reconciliation. But here's our challenge. I, I found that many Christian, too many Christians, and I would throw myself in this, in this bunch at times, most of the time. Many Christians are more prolific at cursing the darkness than lighting a candle. That's a problem. That's a problem. And I understand we have to be mindful of sin. I, Blowing up a nightclub because you don't agree with those people, whoever it is, I know you're going, "Eh, they weren't Christians, okay, Uh, whatever it is, blowing up a nightclub is not a good way to get your point across, amen? Now, I would say that no matter who did it, and the investigation is still ongoing, so we don't know for sure. I just know that in theory, that's not the way you do it. Too many of us want to curse the darkness and never go about lighting a candle. Jesus says, we're the light. You are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You are not the arbiter. I am not the arbiter of curses. That is actually God's job. Romans chapter 12 very specifically tells us, do not overcome evil with evil. I know that that's our proclivity. I get that, and I understand why we respond that way. But it says, do not overcome evil with evil. God will avenge. That's what Paul says. God will avenge. And he's quoting the Old Testament as well. He says, overcome evil with, with good. Again, you and I think we can read hearts. We think we can read other people's hearts. And we don't even really ever stop to ponder whether or not we're reading our heart correctly. We just assume that we have. And yet the human heart, under the corruption of sin, Jeremiah 17 tells us, is wicked and deception above, wicked and deceptive above everything else? Who can understand it? In other words, no one can understand it. No one can understand it. You've heard me rail on this before. I'll rail on it again. Just follow your heart. Okay, carry that to its logical conclusion. If everyone just follows their heart, we're going to have chaos. Whose heart wins? That's what I want to know. Nobody ever wants to answer that, that question. Well, God knows the hearts of people because he knows everything. He's sovereign, and he's going to take care of it. Our job is to have faith and to trust him. The third voice, verses 7 through 9, the Davidic king now speaks. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Ooh, that verse 9, a little tough. So verse 7, God's anointed tells of the salvation story of God. He's telling the salvation story of God in very brief poetry. And he says, those who align themselves with God through the anointed will gain an inheritance. If you're in Christ, you will gain the inheritance, which is the new Jerusalem. But then verse 9 tells of those who reject God and his anointed, and the description is really tough. You're going to be broken with rods, and you're going to be dashed to pieces like a a, a clay vessel, which is very easily dashed to pieces. This is is tough language. Uh, Yeah, offensive even, offensive. Just wait till we get to Psalm 137. Whoa. Okay. This is metaphorical and I'm not trying to soften it by saying it's metaphorical language, but it is metaphorical language depicting what happens when a person's sin and rebellion turns on them, and what happens is destruction and death. Rods will dash you, break you, and, and you'll be dashed to pieces. But in the midst of this, I want you to consider this. This is good news, and here's why, okay? Jesus was broken. He was not broken by a rod of iron. Jesus was dashed to pieces, not like a clay vessel, but by his execution. He was broken on the cross, and he was dashed to pieces by his execution. The crucifixion of Jesus is singularly, at the same time, the greatest act in the history of humanity and the most heinous and most evil act. In the history of humanity, Jesus was unjustly executed, but in the midst of that, his body has been broken and dashed so that we don't have to be. That is good news. He took that upon himself. In him, we get to exchange our destiny, our deserved destiny of brokenness, for his holiness, his perfection, and his righteousness. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. And this psalm clearly looks forward to that. This is the Davidic king speaking of that. So this psalm is both current, we can apply it to our lives now, and it's prophetic. It tells of what's to come. The last voice, the last stanza, verses 10 through 12. God's wise counsel, his warning to those who would rebel against him. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled blessed are those who take refuge in him so here's God giving his counsel to the nations and people who would reject and rebel against him be wise and what is that wisdom we've talked about this many many times wisdom is submission to God and his will always has been always will be The fear of the Lord, we're told throughout Scripture, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, insight, understanding, and knowledge. And it's the same message in the New Testament. Jesus submits to and does the will of the Father. He tells us that. I'm not doing this on my own accord. I'm submitting to the will of the Father here. Uh, John Calvin, the great reformist, wrote this uh, 600 years ago, give or take a couple hundred years we, humans, we are by nature too inclined to attribute everything to us unless our feebleness be shown. In other words, we like to attribute all the good stuff to us, as it were, to our eyes. We readily esteem our virtue over its due measure. I love that sentence. Oh, many of us think we live in a culture, we just, we're, we're too excited about ourselves. Calvin's writing here hundreds of years ago and he says, humanity hasn't changed, Humans back then were too excited about themselves, too thrilled with themselves. And then this language of verse 12, kiss the sun. Another way to say this is kiss the ring. So, anytime you see kiss the sun or kiss the ring, it literally means show reverence, respect, and submission. So, kiss the sun means you need to submit to and show reverence to the king, the Messiah. Now, this is important to understand. Everyone is going to kiss a ring. You should seriously consider and pray about what ring in your life you are submitting to and kissing. Who is your son? We run around, who's your daddy? Okay, who's your son is the way God would say it. All right? Who are you submitting to? Who are you paying reverence to? Or what? What is it? What are you submitting to? What are you paying reverence? reverence to there is a king there is a son in each of our lives which one will ours be this is a life or death question This is the most important question you're ever going to answer in your life and God the father is saying I'm giving you my son for this and he's going to be broken and dashed for that purpose so that so that you can have him and he can have you it's the gospel We're also called to rejoice with God with fear and trembling, but we need to understand those words, too. When we talk about fear and trembling in in Scripture, about, you know, fear is the beginning of all wisdom, fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom, um, it's a fear and trembling that literally we all understand and appreciate. It's a fear and trembling that comes when we recognize greatness and raw power. Uh, Think of the one person you would absolutely love to meet, but you probably never will. Because of your great love and respect and admiration of them. They're just, they're, they've done something that you just you really revere. So, somebody in your industry, somebody maybe it's an athlete or, or an entertainer or, or, or whatever it is. That's the fear and trembling that we would have if we were ever in that person's presence. Okay? Uh, there's a, an actor. Uh, the vast majority of you are probably going to say, ah. Some of you guys that are like me, a little bit older and beyond, you're going to go, okay, I know who that is. Show, show the picture of the young Bruce Dern. That's Bruce Dern. It's a picture from uh, his 1972 movie, The Cowboys, with John Wayne, okay? And then here's a more recent picture of him. This was taken uh, just after, in 2012, he shot the movie Nebraska, which was actually nominated for uh, Best Picture of that. Anybody see Nebraska, by the way? Okay, yeah. Uh, He was also nominated uh, for an Oscar for Best Picture in Nebraska. Uh, In 1977, he was nominated for an Oscar and Best Supporting Actor in Coming Home with uh, John Voight and, and, um, what's her name? Jane Fonda, yeah. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, So he's been nominated for a couple of of, uh, Academy Awards, but perhaps... Go back to that first picture if you could. Perhaps he's best known for this role. He didn't even have a name in this role. He was called Longhair. Okay? In the, movie, the Cow- 1972 movie of the Cowboys with John Wayne, uh, Bruce Stern became and is the first and only person to ever murder John Wayne on camera. Now, there was another war movie where John Wayne actually died, but he wasn't killed by somebody on screen. This is the only one. And there's an interesting backstory to this. I know I'm digressing a little bit, but this stuff interests me. There's an interesting backstory to this. Uh, There are many people who say that, that Bruce Dern was as talented or more talented than, say, Jack Nicholson, and he was kind of of that era, Jack Nicholson, okay? And Jack Nicholson became Jack Nicholson, and he became known as Laura Dern's father. That's essentially what it is. But he was also known as the guy who killed the Duke. And they said if he hadn't done that, his career would have been different. Bruce Stern even recalls times when he was out to eat or walking uh, uh, the street and people would literally walk up to him and cuss him out and say, you killed John Wayne. People really struggle with separating reality from fantasy. Have you noticed that? Anyway, I love Bruce Stern. He's been around for 55 years. I love Bruce Stern. I think he's terrific. Okay. He's a wonderful actor. I've always liked him. I was on a plane in, in uh, 1988 from Orange County to Reno, and I got on and I sat down, kind of getting my stuff adjusted, and put. And I kind of sneak a look at the person, I, I always do that on a plane, it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> do I want to talk to this person? I'm like, oh my God, that's Bruce Dern, man. So I sat next to Bruce Dern from Orange County to Reno, you know. I'm kind of like, all right, what do I say? I, you wouldn't, I came up with something really clever. I go, you're Bruce Dern, aren't you? <laughs> he was blown away by this insight, man. Anyway, he was so nice, so kind, so gracious, and I know. It's an hour plane ride, big deal. But he was. But I will tell you, more importantly, my re- I was so careful I, I, I wanted to respect him. I wanted to please him. I didn't want to rile him up. I mean, he killed John Wayne for crying out loud. It but here you go. Here's the point I'm trying to get at. This psalm's not talking about Bruce Dern. You can take that away now. This psalm is not talking about Bruce Dern. It's not talking about Bono. It's not talking about Bradley Cooper or Amy Adams or LeBron or, or Stephen Curry. It, it, it's not even talking about President Obama or whoever. It's talking about God. So about God, all-powerful. Bruce Dern's pretty close, you know, to the end there. He's kind of pushing the envelope, as George Casanza would say, you know. God loves us, and he's gracious to us, and he's merciful for us, and yet he has all power. That's a wild combination, y'all. This fear is a reverent fear, but it's the fear that is nevertheless aware of power. God, in comparison to those people that I just mentioned, including the president, including, any, including the Donald and Hillary, compared to them, God would really make them look human. They're just humans, and as such, they're fallen. So think of Psalm 2 this way. Turning to God is one death. Turning to God is literally one death. When you turn to God through Jesus Christ, you're called to die to yourself. You're going to die, but it's a death that leads to a resurrected life. Turning away from God leads to death also. You die again, but it's a death that leads to utter destruction and annihilation. Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, you need to deny yourself, literally die to yourself and pick up your cross. So there's going to be a death, which will it be? Are you going to die to to yourself and be resurrected, or are you going to die to yourself and be annihilated? Those are pretty much our two choices. And by the way, it's our fault. We hate this part. Again, Psalm 9, verses 15 through 16, kind of confirming, again, the theology that we find here. The psalmist says this, The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. They set this whole thing up, To trap somebody else, and all they did was trap themselves. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. It's their fault. It's our fault. Romans 1 again. God turns us over to our sin. And here you go. Sin judges us. (laughs) And, And it judges us to be found wanting, lacking. So let me return to this question. So how could a loving God do this? Again, genuine love cannot exist without judgment. We understand this in practicality, but not often in theory or ideology. And I would just say this Can you ever show me a parent who's never been angry and judgmental about something dangerous or destructive that comes into their child's life? You can't do it. Junior's running out into traffic. I love him so much. Go ahead. It's just silly. It's just silly. But second of all, we always seem to forget that God really, in most respects, is merely just giving us what we want. He's turning us over to the sin that we so desperately seek and desire, and then it's our sin that gets us. It's a clear teaching of the Psalms. It's a clear teaching of Romans 1 and Ephesians 2. You can find it there as well. It's clear teaching of Jesus in the Gospels, but our problem is is that we're always looking for a scapegoat. And by the way, our favorite scapegoat is none other than, than God. The fact that sin often turns itself on the sinner is known as ironic justice. It's ironic that what we want so desperately would turn against us. What we serve so heartily would turn against us. But it's also ironic, now hear this, it's also ironic that Jesus went to the cross, and here's why. It's another form of ironic justice. When Jesus went to the cross, Satan thought he had won. But in reality, the cross turned out to be for Satan and sin's destruction. Satan's celebrating, and he's celebrating his own demise when Jesus goes to the cross. The consistent teaching of Scripture is that There are those condemned and those redeemed, and those redeemed are the ones who turn to God, and those who are condemned are the ones that turn away from God. Uh, Verse 12 talks about the refuge in God. Derek Kidner, great Old Testament scholar, says it this way, there is no refuge from God, only refuge in God. And I would say, by the way, there's no refuge from sin except in Jesus Christ. It's the only place. But also, and let me close with this, I think this is important to also look at the other side of this. This psalm is not just a warning for people who do not believe in God, but also it is assurance and hope for those who have ever suffered under unjust kings, unjust rulers, unjust governors, and unjust leaders. Anybody in this room like that? Have you ever suffered under somebody who is unjust, who is leading you, supervising you, governing you? This is an important notion because we talk a lot about submission here because scriptures call us to submission. And and the question would be, and it's a legitimate question, what if the leader that we have to submit to is wicked? Well, I'll be the first to admit, over the history of the world and and contemporarily as well, there are probably way more wicked leaders than righteous. Amen? Sin is funny that way. You... (laughs) you know why no one wants the other political party to ever win elections? You know what's at the root of that? Do you know, really, if we really get down, if we just kind of peel back the layers, you know why nobody wants the other side to win elections? We don't want to be ruled by anyone who is unrighteous. Have have you noticed that there hasn't been any election recently? And And I'm older than most of you. I can't remember the last election where we actually were exalting the attributes and characteristics of one Uh, candidate over and against the other. Instead, we're just attacking the other side, talking about how awful they are. And the truth is they are awful. They're human beings. They're sinful. They're corrupt, okay? But we don't want to be ruled by the unrighteous. Now, that statement is true, but do you see the irony in the statement? We don't want to be ruled by the unrighteous. If your side wins, the other side is going to be ruled by the unrighteous. (laughs) Election evening is going to be so much fun. (laughs) I guarantee you this, unrighteous people are going to win the election. And to put our faith and hope in that is just is, is not helpful. We, eh, we need to vote and all that stuff, but to put our faith and hope in that. See, I love the story of Joseph in Genesis, Genesis 37 through 50. Here's one leader who is like the exception to all of this. He was truly righteous. What a wonderful story. This is a man who suffered greatly. Joseph suffered greatly. Now, we're going to talk a lot about suffering in the, in the Psalms, and we already have to some extent. We know that suffering is for our good and for God's glory. We know that we suffer from today. We suffer from our own sin. We also know for a fact that we suffer because of the sin of, sin of others. We also suffer because uh, uh, sin has corrupted the created order, and so we have earthquakes and hurricanes and things like that. There's, a, there's myriad reasons why we suffer. Joseph specifically suffered because of the sin of others, and yet... He forgave freely and lived compassionately and mercifully. And when he finally got to rule, he gave grace and favor, not just to his own people, but more especially to the people who weren't his own people and to the people who oppressed him and persecuted him. He is what the what we call in the Old Testament a Christ type. We see a foreshadowing of Jesus in Joseph. Yet I admit he's more of the exception than the rule. And so you're saying, so pastor, you're admitting that this submission thing that you're on top of, that you're writing hurt on so often, it has some flaws, right? Sure it does. But here's what we need to understand. The flaw is not in God's command. The flaw is not in God's righteousness. The flaw is not in God's design. But the flaw is in human nature and execution. The flaw lies with us. It's not God. Our behavior does not invalidate the truth of God. Amen? So so again, it's a question of faith and trust, which, by the way, is a major theme in Scripture, if you haven't noticed. So how much faith did Jesus have in going to the cross? Remember his last prayer to God before the trial and the execution happened. He's in the garden, and he says, Father, if there's another way we could do this, I know I signed up for this, but let's just have one more conversation about this. Find out if we can figure it out. But ultimately, what did he say? It's not my will, it's your will. I'm going to the cross. So here you go. Jesus, God in the the flesh, he submitted himself to the most notoriously corrupt governmental regime of all time, and he did it to his death. And he knew it. He knew that's what he was doing. Here's another way of saying it. The wrong political party had been in power in Jerusalem for centuries. The wrong political party had been in power in his home for centuries. And yet he faithfully executed his call. And God calls the same from us. He says, You've got to have that same faith because I'd never ask you to do anything that Jesus hasn't already done. That's why he's our great high priest. And that's the gospel. Let me pray, and we will uh, wrap things up with our uh, time of reflection and a song. Lord God, we uh, thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you for uh, this psalm that so clearly delineates uh, what it is that life is about and what you're expecting from us. So, Lord God, I I, I thank you for that, and I pray that you'd give us the power and the courage the inspiration to be able to live this as well. We ask it in Jesus' name.